Hello, folks. Well, uh, let's hear it for the new lectern. Woo! Brian built this. Isn't that amazing? Uh, I, I do a little sketch, and Brian builds stuff. He's just an incredible, incredible guy to have on the team. Well, welcome to church. Uh, let me add a welcome to Paul's. If this is uh, your first time with us, welcome. It's good to have you here. Uh, my name is Pete. I pastor the church. We kicked the church off 17 years ago, and today, is, as Paul mentioned, is the first. We've never, ever live-streamed uh, a Sunday morning gathering uh, across locations. Um, so, and, and as you know, if you've been on the journey with us as a church, just in the last couple of weeks, we've kicked off our north location. Um, so we now one church in three locations instead of one church in two locations, which is so exciting. And part of that, on a semi-regular basis, uh, most months we'll do a moment where the preach here will be relayed across town uh, to the guys in North and Leith. So exciting step. And um, if, you're, if you're joining with us as a church, you know what, you're so welcome. And just know that you're part of a church that's not just here in Gorgie, but uh, we've, we've spread. And the God willing, in the years that follow, we're hoping to see uh, one launch in the south of the city, one launch in West Lothian, and one launch in the city center. We don't know what order it's all going to happen, uh, but we're just looking to God for each step as we go. So you can be praying with us, and maybe many of you will be involved in those in future years. So uh, let's, let's pray and just give this time to God. Father in heaven, thank you so much, God, for your love for us. Thank you, God, that you are among us just now as we gather in your name. Jesus, thank you that you know everyone in this room. You know the plans you have for them. God, I know that you've designed them and you've got a purpose for their lives. Not one person in this room is an accident. I pray, God, as we turn to the Bible, your words, I pray that you would speak to us. You would reveal yourself to us, God. You'd make yourself real and you would draw us close to you. God, I pray, help us to understand things. Help us to be established in truths and build us up. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, let's, first of all, let's, I just want to say a welcome to everyone joining us in North and in Leith. Great to have you connecting. We're one church, three locations. Great to be together for this moment. We're in a journey in the book of Acts, and we're going to continue there in Acts chapter 2 now. And if you've missed what we've been looking at in the last few weeks, go online and download it from there. You know, there are moments in life where we hit like a crossroads, a crisis moment, or an opportunity moment where we're at a crossroads. Where we're either because of a crossroads, either, either because of a crisis or an opportunity, we're asking, what shall we do? What, shall we, what way do we go? And those are the moments that define the rest of our lives. Someone once said, if you want to know what your future looks like, look at the decisions you're making today. So you think of crossroad moments, what shall we do moments. You think of it globally. You remember after 9-11, world leaders were asking, what shall we do? And because of their decisions, we, we, it resulted in two wars the Gulf, in the Gulf with uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And then just now we've got the crisis with the refugees and government leaders are asking, what shall we do? And it, we don't know how it's going to go with that. And they're trying to do their best to make the right decisions. Maybe you've had a, a, a moment this week where maybe through crisis or through some, maybe an opportunity has been put your way and you're at the point where you're saying, what shall I do? And these are most important points because these are the points that define what our future becomes. In the book of Acts, where we are today, the people who are listening to Peter the Apostle speaking are brought to this point of crisis, where they're at the point where they just, they just don't know what to do and they're saying, what shall we do? And I believe the verses we're looking at today are going to bring us to the same point where we, where we say, 
What shall we do? And then we'll get, God will give us an answer. So to let us understand the context. Let's go into the verses. The context is this. Jesus Christ has been on the earth. He's done his three years ministry. At the end of it, he's died on the cross for our sins. On the third day, he's risen again. He's spent time with the disciples. He's just commissioned them to go and make disciples of all nations. And now he's, he's gone back to the Father, and now the disciples are gathered. The Holy Spirit's come. We looked at that last week. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And then huge crowds of people in Jerusalem gather in response to this amazing sign and wonder that's happened. So let's kick off here. So Peter stands up, speaks to the crowds of people who have gathered. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, this was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, signs, and wonders, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Isn't it amazing in the midst of what seemed like a crisis, God was still on the throne. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You imagine you're part of the crowd hearing this. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor let your holy ones see decay. You have made known to me the way, the paths of life, and you fill me with joy in your presence. Quoting the Old Testament, it was a prophecy that Jesus wouldn't be left in the grave, but he would be resurrected. Peter goes on, fellow Israelites, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and is in his tomb here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew what God had promised to him an oath, that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he would not abandon him to the realm of the dead, nor would his body see decay. God has raised Jesus to life. Give me an amen. God has raised Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and has now poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, They were cut to the heart. Say, cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They come to a moment of crisis. They're under conviction. They're saying, what do we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you and to your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Corrupt generation, you think about it, he's speaking to some of the most religious people on planet earth. He's speaking to some of the most devoutly religious people on earth and he's saying, save yourself from this corrupt generation. 
what hope do we have, right? So the world was corrupt in religiousness, and yet today we are in secularism and the world is corrupt. Save yourself from this generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The church, the first church ever on planet earth, was birth. So here's where we're going today. There's two halves to this message, just like there's two halves to these verses. First half of the verses talk about Peter's message to the crowds. Second half of the verses speak about the crowd's response. What shall we do and what Peter told them to do? And in each half, I'm going to have three points. The first three points are going to be the message, the mover, and the messenger. And then the second half, there's three points. And it's repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's where we're going if you're taking notes. So first of all, the message. This is seven weeks after the crucifixion of Jesus. Everyone knew about that. That, was not, that wasn't something that had been brushed under the carpet. Everyone in that area knew about the crucifixion of Jesus. It was the big news. It was the most controversial thing that happened for generations. Everyone knew about it. And now all these people were in Jerusalem for a Jewish festival, and they hear these great phenomena. They hear mighty rushing winds. They see these signs and wonders. They hear these people speaking in other languages uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. These were uneducated Galileans speaking eloquently in other languages, declaring the mighty acts of God. And the crowds are bewildered. They gather together and say, what's this all about? That's what's been going on. Peter stands up and preaches a message to that crowd. And listen to what he says in verse 36. He tells them about Jesus and he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, how relevant was that to the crowds? You think about it. So who were the crowds? Well, I dare say, okay, 3,000 people decided to follow Jesus on that day. We read that. But there might have been tens of thousands of people gathered. We don't know. But the likelihood is, was there were many, many more people there. And when Peter says, whom you crucified, well, seriously, how relevant was that? Because I'm guessing some of the people there would have been the ones in the crowds when Jesus was going through the trial who would have cheered out, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. I'm sure some of them were those people, absolutely. But Peter says to all of them, whom you crucified. And yet the Bible says, if you read back in the verses, these were people from every nation under heaven. So this wasn't like people who lived in Jerusalem who were part of that crowd who called for the crucifixion of Jesus. These were, it's far wider than that. And yet, the Bible says, as we just read, they were all cut to the heart. Not just those who were in the crowd saying, crucify him, but all of them were cut to the heart. That's incredible. Why is that relevant? Well, here we are 2,000 years later. I'm pretty certain you weren't around in the mob crying for the crucifixion of Jesus. Dead certain of that. And yet today, Jesus, God through his spirit would say exactly the same to you. You crucified the Christ. It's incredibly relevant. And you should also be cut to the heart. It's, it's like the story of the grandfather. And in the afternoon, he always used to have a, a sleep in the living room. And this grandfather would sit there and snooze away in his favorite chair and the grandkids knew he did this, and one day decided to play a, a trick on him. So they got some really smelly cheese and rubbed it into his grandfather's, grandfather's mustache as he was snoozing. So and he, he wakes up after a snooze, and he, he, he smells this horrible smell. 
And, and, he, and he says, this living room stinks. And then he gets out of the living room and he walks into the kitchen. And he, oh man, the kitchen stinks. So he, he opens the door and goes out into the garden. He says, no, the whole world stinks, he says. And actually, that's the message of the Bible. That every single person who has ever lived, well, maybe not stinks, but is a sinner. All have sinned, the Bible says. And so when Peter stands up and says, you crucified the Christ, he wasn't just speaking about the ones who were in the crowd saying, crucify him. He was speaking to the whole crowd, and the whole crowd felt it. John Stott, famous preacher from London, he said this, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. The moment Adam sins, right at the very beginning of time, the moment Adam sins, the Bible says that God made him skins to cover his shame. God killed an animal, signifying the fact that because you sinned, Adam, a substitute has to be provided to cleanse you from your sin. Adam's sin actually literally resulted in the crucifixion of Christ. Every one of our sins literally result in the crucifixion of the Christ. And I don't care if you've sinned 2,000 years after the crucifixion of the Christ. God who stands outside of time saw us, saw all the sins we would ever commit, and provided a substitute for one moment for all people. We are, we are, we are guilty of the bloods of Jesus, and we can be cleansed at the same time by the blood of Jesus. Our sin, our ultimate sin, is the rejection of God, the crucifixion of the Christ. Rembrandt, in his famous painting of the three crosses, you see the three crosses, and there's Jesus in the middle, there's the thieves either side, and there you see the crowd around the three crosses, and you see different facial expressions, some jeering, some crying, different emotions that were going on around the cross that you read in the Gospels. But there in the corner, art critics say Rembrandt painted himself in the corner. And the reason he painted himself in the corner is he recognized that his sins, his sins helped nail Jesus to the cross. That was Rembrandt's way of saying that. Now that's the bad news. And before you can understand the good news, good news literally translates the gospel. Before you can understand the gospel, the good news, you've got to understand the bad news. And the bad news is we are guilty before God. Our sins are horrendous. They're so bad Christ needed to be crucified because of our sins. But the good news is that Jesus' crucifixion was also not just because of our sins, but also to save us from our sins. There was two boys in St. Louis uh, near the Mississippi River. They were out playing one afternoon. And as they were playing beside the Mississippi River, it was actually not a safe place to play because they would dredge the river because of all the silt and debris that would build up in the river. And they would dump the, the sludge at the side of the riverbanks. And as the kids were playing, a terrible accident happened. Hours passed, no one knew where the kids were, so they sent out a search party trying to find these kids. And they looked in the school playground, looked in, out in the fields. They weren't there. Eventually, they came down to the riverbank, and there, almost fully submerged, just his head above the water was one of the brothers. And the, he was unconscious because the pressure of all the materials against his lung had caused him to pass out. They managed to rescue him from the muds, and they said, Where is your brother? And the, the, the lad with a tear in his eye said, my brother, as soon as I fell into the sludge, my brother dived in, put me on his shoulders. I was standing on my brother's shoulders in the mud. And the truth is this, that when Jesus died on the cross, he took your sin. He dived into the sands of humanity, 
took on humanity himself so that he could also take on our sins. And in that moment on the cross, he died in your place so that you and I wouldn't have to die. He was punished so we could be free from punishment. He was condemned so we could be forever accepted and never, ever condemned. We are today as accepted as Jesus is accepted. We are as loved before the Father as Jesus is loved before the Father. That's how clean you are. That's how declared righteous you are if you believe in Jesus Christ. The bad news has to come first. You have to realize how bad your sin is before you can realize how good the incredible Savior is. That was the message. And by the way, folks, that message defines who we are as a church. That's what we're all about. We believe in that message. Everything we do, not just at the start of our Christian faith, but everything we do following on from that Christian faith is based on that message. We're grounded and rooted in that thing called the good news, the gospel. And maybe today you've never accepted that message, whether you're in North and Leith or whether you're right here in Gorgie. Maybe you've never accepted that message. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior. Today is your day. Make this decision. Make the best decision of your life and choose to become a follower of Jesus, the great Savior who died and rose again for you. Give me an amen. Give me an amen, North and Leith. It's true. Okay, so that's the message. Then there's the mover. Who is moving things behind the scenes? Because if you look at the results, it's incredible results. So this, Peter, the apostle, had a very hard sell. I mean, it was incredibly hard. So imagine standing up in front of the Jewish people in Jerusalem and telling the Jewish people that their Messiah, because they had an expectation the Messiah was going to be this victorious warrior. And you were now telling them that he was a crucified Savior. That's a tough pill to swallow. You're telling these Jews, these religious people, these devoutly religious people, that they are guilty for the crucifixion of the Christ. That they've, okay, they've, for, for generations they've been waiting for the Messiah to come, for David's son, this great ruler. They've been waiting for generations and generations, and now they've crucified him. And now your, your job is to stand up and tell these Jewish people, by the way, the one you waited for for generations, you crucified him. That's a, that's a, that's a hard sell. That's a tough pill to swallow. Furthermore, these were Jews. They were monotheists. They believed in one God. And to stand up and say, by the way, the one you crucified isn't just a guy. He's also Lord. He's one with the Father, the Son of God, eternally fully God, fully man. That's a hard sell. That's a tough pill for these Jewish devout people to swallow. And yet, Peter stands up and 3,000 Jews say, I'm in hook, line, and sinker. It's incredible results. Verse 37 says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Say cut to the heart. How is that possible that we could have seen such results in the hotbed of religion in Jerusalem? The answer is the Holy Spirit. Jesus predicted the Holy Spirit would come, and Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 8, he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That word convicts. So the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts. So it's not just human argument. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's the one doing the moving in people's souls behind the scenes. The Holy Spirit brings to conviction. The word convicts is a Greek word which literally means it describes a lawyer cross-examining a guilty person in order to prove their guilt and make them convinced of their guilt. So that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing when the Holy Spirit is convicting someone. The Holy Spirit is like a lawyer doing a really good case behind the scenes, 
making it very clear to them, abundantly clear to them, that what has been said is true and that they are indeed guilty. You have experienced conviction. Show of hands. Okay, the rest of you should be feeling convicted for lying. All right? I remember feeling convicted. I remember in my early teens, on numerous occasions, um, feeling, I mean, deeply convicted. I remember one evening, it was maybe a couple of years before I made that ultimate commitment to follow Jesus. I remember one evening walking home. Uh, I, I distinctly remember walking across my lawn back to my front door, just being hugely aware that God was real and that I wasn't saved. Massively aware of it. I mean, that only God was making me aware of that. You could, I mean, I knew it was true and I knew I was condemned. I can't believe I waited another couple of years before eventually I decided to follow Jesus, but it was the Holy Spirit's conviction. And the truth is this, deep conviction brings deep comfort. And that's what you need to know. Conviction is this. The conviction comes that your sin is so serious, it needed the Christ to be crucified. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit makes that real to you. But flip side is this. The comfort of the Holy Spirit, in, at the moment you're convicted of your guilt before God, you were also hugely comforted that it was because of your sin He loved you so much He was willing to die. So right there, this conviction and comfort all mingled together. He died because of me. That's conviction. He died because of me. That's comfort. The same thing that convicts me comforts me. And that's true conviction. Conviction lets you know you are more sinful than you ever dared realize. And the comfort lets you know you are more loved than you ever dared hoped. When you look at the cross, you can't look at the cross and conclude that your sins aren't serious. When you look at the cross, your only conclusion can be, my sins are incredibly serious. And when you look at the cross, you cannot look at the cross and conclude that God does not love me. You're blind. Look at the cross. That tells you your sin is serious, but your God loves you. It's a radical truth. And only when it's presented in the true way, only when it's understood in its entirety, can it transform your life. You see, guilt is different to conviction. Guilt will tell you you've broken God's rules. And I'm sure the Jewish people up to this point knew they'd broken God's rules. Everyone knows that. But guilt doesn't change anyone's life. But true conviction doesn't just tell you you've broken God's rules. It tells you, I've broken God's heart. And when you realize that your sin has broken God's heart, you won't just look for forgiveness. You'll want to change. And that's the radical difference. You see, guilt says, I'd better do the right thing. Conviction says, I want to do the right thing. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That's the difference between guilt and true conviction. Godly sorrow brings repentance, leads to salvation. The negative has to come before you can experience the positive. How many here, how many there watching, how many of you, it was when you hit rock bottom that you eventually, you wouldn't be in this room had you not have hit rock bottom. You know that, you know that. Edinburgh is so together, right? Edinburgh is such a together city. Everyone's together. 
they, they're, they're so self-assured. You know, they're so confident in the self. And you know what? The truth is this. They're told that by the world. The world tells you, you're great. You're amazing. You know, you're a winner. If there's a problem, it's someone else's problem. It's definitely not your problem because you're great. That's what the world tells you. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you're wicked, Edinburgh. You're wicked people here. You are a sinner. You are lost. But at the same time as saying that, it gives you a reality check about your condition, Edinburgh and people here. And at the same time, it gives you a massive reality check that your God loves you more than you could ever dare imagine. Let the robustness of that become the undergirdingness that you stand on. You can have a good self-esteem, but not based on you, based on how God has saved you and how much God loved you despite your sin. It says, they were cut to the heart, and Edinburgh needs cut to the heart. How can this city change? It needs cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit is at work in this city. The Holy Spirit is at work in your lives. The mover who will move you to be transformed and changed. There was a story of a man who was, he was called the Dove Man, and he would be a guide who would take people through desert places in Africa, northern Africa. And he, whenever he'd be lost in the middle of some desert place, he would get, he had a pigeon that he had a string attached to, it was a homing pigeon, and he would release the pigeon and let the line out, and the pigeon would, the direction the pigeon would fly in, and it would strain in that direction, he knew that was home. And so he became known as the, the Dove Man, and he never got lost in the wilderness. And I just want to say the Holy Spirit is at work, maybe in some of you, and he's bringing you to the Father. He's wanting to bring you home. He doesn't want you to stray anymore. He's wanting you to come home, constantly bringing people back to God. In this city, the Holy Spirit is at work in your friends, in your family members, in your communities, in your streets. The Holy Spirit is at work wooing people, drawing people to him. We get to partner with the Holy Spirit in their salvation. God is doing a great thing. He's the mover. He's the one that brings the transformation. And it's only because of the Holy Spirit they saw those results in that day and age. And it's only because of the Holy Spirit that we will see great results in our day and age. And I'm confident not in me or in our plan. I'm very confident in a God who's inspired us and who's with us. So he's the mover. So there's the message, there's the mover. And then thirdly, there's the messenger. There was, there was the apostle Peter. Seven weeks before this, Peter before this great sermon, before the birthing of the first church, seven weeks before it, Peter was one of the ones who denied Jesus. Right there, when, at, the, at the time when Jesus most needed him, there was Peter denying Jesus. And here he was seven weeks later, after his greatest failure, now experiencing his greatest success. Isn't that incredible? How is that possible? It's possible because Peter himself had been cut to the heart. Just as, Jesus, just as Jesus was in that moment of being arrested and going through those trials, and Peter was denying Jesus, it records for us in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, that the Lord turned, and Peter denied Jesus now, and it says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him, before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. He, like the crowd he was now preaching to, knew what it was like to be cut to the heart. As he stood up in front of that crowd, he wasn't speaking as someone who had it all together, and as if, like, like I'm not speaking to you as I'm someone who's got it all together. I'm with you. I'm a sinner. I'm messed up. And Peter felt exactly the same. I love what Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher, said about evangelism. He said this, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. 
And that's exactly how I feel. Every Sunday when I'm preaching to you, I'm thinking, wow, that's a good truth. I better tell them about it, right? That's exactly how I feel. So do not feel disqualified. Maybe you feel utterly disqualified. How on earth could I tell someone about this great message and see the Holy Spirit do the great move in their heart? How is that possible? It's possible because, do you know what? God uses imperfect people. Why? Because of Jesus' death on the cross. We're not imperfect anymore in his sight. We might still be in our sight, but we're not in his sight. And that's what counts. We've been declared righteous. You're qualified by his qualification, not by your own work. It's because of his work you stand, and it's his work through you that accomplishes the great thing. So then we come to the kind of hinge in the verses. Peter's brought this message to them. The Holy Spirit's moved, and now the people are cut to the heart. And this is the hinge verse. It says in verse 37, when the, Peter, sorry, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That's the moment. It was a wonderful moment. It was a moment of humility. What shall we do? It's not, they're not speaking as someone who's got it together. It's a moment of great humility. It's a moment where they're saying, I have needs. To be honest, it was a moment that God had longed for all their life since he knit them together in their mother's womb. A moment where in their fallenness, they would come to a place of humility and call out to God. It might be that maybe today you need to come to that place of humility, whether you're in North there, Crosstown, or Crosstown in Leith, or whether you're right here in Gorgie, you need to come to that place of humility where you say, what must I do? You realize before God, you're convicted, you know you're a sinner, you know that the Savior is great and his love for you is incredible. And you don't want to stay the same. And you're at the point where you're saying, what must I do? You make that decision today. At the end of the service, I will give you an opportunity to make that decision. It might be, however, that there's friends and family members of yours that you're praying that they will come to that point where they pray. Wouldn't it be great for some of your friends and families to get to the place where they, in a moment of humility, having hardened the heart for so long, in a moment of humility, they say, what must I do? Wouldn't that be great? And that's the work of God. The truth is this, these people probably had heard Jesus many times. These were Jewish people from all around the surrounding regions. They came together for the festivals, Jewish festivals, every year. Jesus was at those festivals. I assure you, many of the people in that crowd would have heard Jesus teach. Then they would see, have seen the miracles. So this wasn't their first encounter with this good news, the gospel. And the truth is this, it might take several encounters. If you think of your life, if, if I asked you how many times it was for you that you heard the message about Jesus and God's love, how many times was it before you eventually made that decision? The reality is many of you would say uh, three, four, five, six, seven times. Apparently, statistically, it takes on average people hearing the good news about Jesus seven times before they eventually come to that point of making the decision. So persevere, pray. You might be one of the people who gets to be one of those seven. Play your part. Today's your day if you need to make that decision. So the hinge comes. What must I do? And then the answer comes. Acts 2.37, what must I do? Acts 2.38 is the answer. There was a story of a, a lady, and uh, she came home one day to find her house being burgled. And there, there was the robber with all the goods in his swag bag on his shoulder. And she, she didn't know what to do. So she just, she'd, been, she'd been thinking about Acts chapter 2, verse 38, like we are today. She'd been meditating on those verses. And so all she needed to do was just, she shouted, Acts 2, 38! And the, the robber just froze in his steps. 
didn't move a muscle. And she, she thought, all right. So she got the phone and she dialed 999. And the guy's still standing there like this. He dialed 999. And eventually the, the police arrived and they arrest the guy. And they take him away. And, and they said to her, what did you do to make him freeze? And she said, I just shouted Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And they thought, that's nuts. So they, they take him in the car and they take him back to the, the police station. And on the way to the police station, she said, why did you freeze? She was quoting to you a scripture. And the robber said, a scripture? No. I thought she said she has an axe in 238s. <laughs> anyway, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. What must I do? You know, there are some jokes I have on file, right? And I can never use them until you get to sermon when you're actually using Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to milk that for all it's worth. Let's hear it for the Acts 238 joke. Okay. Acts 2.38 at last says, Peter replied, uh, in fact, you can read it with me, one, two, three, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Three great foundations. Now, he says, first of all, repent. It's not just be forgiven. It's repent. I don't know how many of you have come from a Catholic background, but for those who have come from a Catholic background, you will remember when you went to confession and you said, okay, I confess this. And he says, okay, and I say these things, you know, 10 hour fathers and 20 hairy males. And, and you, you, you do all your thing, right? But then nothing changes. You just go and do it again. And the next week you're telling them again, right? It's like, confess. folks, we're not just talking about forgiveness. Peter doesn't just say, oh, come and he'll forgive you. He tells you you'll be forgiven, but he tells you to repent. You can't be a friend of sin if you know what the Savior's done. Again, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said this, if I had a brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? Surely I too must be an accomplice to the crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? True repentance will lead you, true forgiveness, true understanding of forgiveness will lead you to repent. Now, true repentance is a 180 degree turn. You go from living your way to all of a sudden now you're going to live God's way. It's a 180 degree turn. It's not just stopping doing the bad things you were doing. It's also starting doing the good things God's called you to do. Many people in their minds, repentance is, okay, I've stopped doing this, and I've stopped doing that, and I've stopped doing this, and you just stopped, right? You're just bland. You've just done nothing. You've come to a halt in life. But God's not just called you to repent, stop doing all the bad stuff. He's saying, now, turn around, and with the same zeal you gave yourself to doing sin, now channel that zeal into doing God's thing. Live for God. Live for the purpose of God. Make a difference with your life. That's what true repentance is. It's like when you, if you're in a river and you're just going with the flow, you're just going along with the current, you don't feel the pressure, just going with the flow. If for a moment you decide enough is enough and you take a stand in that river, all of a sudden you feel something that was always there, but you never felt it because you were just going with it. All of a sudden you feel the current. And for many of you, when you became a believer and chose to repent for your sins, that's when life got tough. You know, you didn't realize how tempted you were until you became a believer. Some of you feel more tempted now that you're a believer than you were when you were a sinner. 
you're thinking, man, why am I battling? I feel like I'm battling more now than I was when I was a sinner. Why? Because, well, you've taken a stand and the current is hitting you. Current was always there. It's just you didn't bother about it before. Now it bothers you because you want to do the will of God. Just because you feel gutted because you're failing is a good sign. It's a sign you're saved. If you weren't gutted, I'd be concerned. If I wasn't gutted, I'd feel concerned. It's a 180 degree turn. The word repentance means it's an inward change that brings an outward change. The word in the Greek language literally is metanahu, which means to change your mind about God. And so I know we think repentance is primarily change your behavior, but actually the Bible teaches it's a change of your minds. And someone might say, but no, I think God's great. I don't, you know, it's repentance thing. Peter, I don't know what you're talking about. I think God is great. Okay, but let me ask you, are you first in your life or is God first in your life? doesn't matter if you think he's great. Have you repented? Have you chosen for him to be the greatest in your life? That's shifting your mind. Some of you, you say you're a believer, but in your mind, you're equally determined that you're going to be number one in your life. That's not repentance. Repentance is making a choice that he will be number one in my life. I might fail, but he will be number one in my life. I've changed my mind about who is Lord over my life. Repentance is cutting off all possibility of return. Julius Caesar, apparently, when he landed on the shores of Britain, he took his soldiers to the edge of the cliffs of Dover. And there below them in the sea, he'd set fire to all their vessels that they'd come across the channel in. He burned them. And he wanted them to know they were here and they were not going to return. There was no way back. He wanted them to know that they'd cut off all possible return, so they had to go and conquer. And you need to understand, when you come to faith in Jesus, you've got to cut off the past. When we get to Acts 19, you'll see a revival that took place in a place called Ephesus. And one of the things you see was the Ephesian believers, they got all their occult books and all their witchcraft books and all their Harry Potter books. And they made a huge bonfire and set them all on fire, burnt them all. Why? Because you can't really read them then. <laughs> because they were, it wasn't just, oh, we'll sell them at the charity shop, you know, because they might go back to the charity shop and get them. Oh, we'll, we'll use it as toilet roll. I don't know. Anyway, so they didn't, they just, basically, they didn't want to keep it in their possession because they did not want to give themselves in their weakness. They didn't want to give themselves the opportunity for a return. So some of you, you need to burn some stuff. Some of you need to repent. Some of you need to, some of you need to bin your TV. Some of you need to pour out the alcohol you've stored up just in case. You think, I'll keep it there just to, to prove to myself that I can resist temptation. No, you need to pour it out. Some of you need to unsubscribe from that subscription. Some of you need to delete that app. Some of you need to snap your smartphone. Some of you need to deal with that relationship that you know every time you spend time with that person, they are taking you away from God. Repentance means I'm serious about him being Lord of my life. I cut off all avenues that would take me back into the past. Repentance also is a foundation. And just like a house is a foundation, the foundation remains in place throughout the duration of that house. Repentance is your foundation. It says in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, For though a righteous man falls, say falls, though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again, but wicked are brought down to calamity. The truth is this, you haven't and I haven't been perfect. Since our repentance, we've blown it many times. But God says, the righteous may fall, but they'll rise again. You bounce back. My dad, around the side of his house, has a fruit and vegetable plot. 
Now, if you went around the side of my dad's house just now, it doesn't look like a fruit and vegetable plot. It looks like an area that has been deliberately growing weeds for a long period of time. (laughs) But it is a fruit and vegetable plot, trust me. It just hasn't been weeded for a while. The goal should have been, really, that dad would have kept on top of that. And he would have, as soon as the weed pops up, pull it out, get it. There's another one. And you just keep on top of it. But even though he hasn't been keeping on top of it, it still remains a fruit and vegetable patch. The truth is this. We've become believers. We're children of God. We are saved by his incredible love and grace. You may sin. The deal is this. You should just keep walking with him. And as soon as you sin, right, God, I repent. I walk with you. Help. And he helps you. The truth is, for some of you, it's been years since you did that. And maybe today you're connecting with church having been away from God for a long time. And you don't look like a fruit and veg patch anymore. (laughs) You look like a very well-cultivated weed bed. But God says you're still a fruit and veg patch. Get your shovel out. I hope you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) At the end of this service, both in North and in Leith and here, we will lead you in a moment where you can repent. If today you've never become a follower of Jesus, today is your moment. Make this decision to follow Jesus. For some of you, you've walked away from God. Today, God is calling you back to himself. That's why you're here. He's calling you back to himself. It's time to repent again. Secondly, he says, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be baptized. The word baptized there is the Greek word baptizo, which means to submerge or to plunge. A few important things you need to know about this. Some of you as a kid, were, you were sprinkled with water. Okay? Well, see what I'm saying. If I ask you, have you been baptized? I could equally ask you, have you been submerged? So if you're saying, yes, I've been baptized, and by that you're meaning the sprinkling as a kid, you couldn't say, I've been submerged. You couldn't say that. You could say, I've been sprinkled. But you couldn't say, I've been submerged. So, and therefore, you cannot say you've been baptized. That's not baptism. That's sprinkling. Secondly, we find in the Bible, it's for believers. There are 31 occasions in the New Testament where people were baptized. And every single one of those occasions is always with believers. Now, when I was a little baby, like sitting there, you know, my mom and dad christened me, I, I hadn't figured all the God stuff out yet, right? I still had a lot of sinning to do before I figured the God stuff out. And so I wasn't a believer being baptized. So first of all, I couldn't call it baptism because it was a sprinkling. It wasn't a submersion. And secondly, I wasn't a believer. And baptism is always in the New Testament a response to you believing. Not to your parents believing, but to your believing. So if you have been baptized by your parents... Bless them for making a choice to raise you in a certain way. But now that you are a believer, before God, I believe scripturally, you need to now get baptized as a believer. Is it essential for your salvation? No. Do you remember the thief on the cross dying beside Jesus? Jesus didn't say, today you will be with me in paradise. If you can first figure out a way of getting yourself baptized. You know? We're saved by faith, not by any works we can do. Baptism simply is confirming the salvation you've already got. Baptism is burying your old self. You know, it's like, apparently they used to use the word baptizo to 
they took a, a piece of natural colored cloth and they would dip the cloth in dye and they would pull the cloth out and it was an entirely different color. That's what it means to be baptized. You're literally transformed, you're changed completely. And you know what Peter does here? Peter, the apostle in front of this Jewish crowd, he really ramps things up for them because he knew that these Jewish people, he could stand up and tell them that Jesus is the Messiah, and without saying anything outwardly or without changing their lifestyles, these religious Jewish people might have said, okay, I will personally believe that. I will will have a quiet conviction in my heart that that's correct. But Peter didn't just say repent. He said repent and be baptized. In other words, Jews, you can't just believe in this privately. I know that would be comfortable. I know that you won't get kicked out of the synagogue for having a private faith in Jesus. I know if you get baptized, you will be kicked out of the synagogue. I know if you go public with this, you will get some flack. But I'm asking you not just to repent, I'm asking you to get baptized. And so it is today. You know, Dr. Ryrie, the commentator, said this, even today for a Jew, it is not the profession of Christianity, nor his attendance at Christian services, nor his acceptance of the New Testament, but his submission to water baptism that definitely and finally excludes him from the Jewish community and marks him off as a Christian. You know, today, if you are a Muslim, we have a church planted in northern Nigeria, and we have people coming to faith there, and they know if they've come from Islamic background and they get baptized, literally, it could cost them their lives, and yet they get baptized. Because as an expression of repentance is baptism. We have hundreds of churches in India just now, and we have to secretly baptize Hindus Secretly, not in front of their friends and family, but secretly in front of the authorities, because if the authorities caught us baptizing Hindus, we would be in serious trouble. They would be in serious trouble. It could cost them their lives. Peter was saying it's not enough just to have this repentance and keep it to yourself. Time to go public. And I would say to some of you today, so we we see the 3,000 people. It says, those who accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 went public. I don't know how many others said, okay, Peter, I agree with you. Maybe another few thousands. But we only hear about the 3,000 who were baptized. What does, this, what does it say to you about the credibility of their faith, the 3,000 who were baptized? What does it say to you about the solidity of their faith, the 3,000 who were baptized, compared to maybe the few thousands who mentally agreed but didn't get the baptized? What does it say to you about their faith? It proves the sincerity of their faith. So I agree, baptism is not essential for your salvation but it is essential for your obedience. And God today is calling some of you to go public with your faith. You've been a Christian way too long without getting baptized. It's now time to get baptized. Go public with your faith. Declare your faith in you. And don't just go public with your baptism. Live public from then on. Share your faith. Live this life. Glorify God. If you decide today, and I urge you to do that, if you're not baptized, make a decision. As of now, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to go public in my faith. If Muslims can do it, if Jews can do it, if Hindus can do it, risking their lives, then me in this comfortable Western society, the worst that can happen is I get a bit of stick from my mates. I'm going to go for it. If that's you today and you're not baptized and you're making that decision, whether you're in North Leith or here in Gorgie, use the information cards, the welcome cards in your seats, tick, I want to be baptized, and we will include you in the next baptism. And finally, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't want to just be forgiven. I don't want to just be acquitted. I don't want to just be heaven-bound. 
I want to be in constant fellowship and closeness with God. I want to know He's empowering in my life. I want to live the purpose of God. And I think what was being said here is, I believe as soon as you become a Christian, when we've talked about the mover, the Holy Spirit was doing that work in your life, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. I'm really clear on that. The Bible's clear on that. You can't be a child of God if it was not for the Holy Spirit. So I think it's referring to that. I think when you become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit as a gift. But I also think it's referring very specifically to the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And the reason I say that is because this is Acts chapter 2. They had just seen the Holy Spirit being poured out. Having seen that, Peter's now saying, okay, let me tell you what this is all about. This is about Jesus. And then he tells them about Jesus. And then he said, repent, be baptized. And you also, like you saw them, you will also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think he was referring to the baptism of the Spirit. I remember having been baptized with the Holy Spirit, maybe a few months after I'd become a Christian. I remember sitting in my bedroom one day and my mom knocked the door and she came in and sat down beside me in my bed. I was 15. She said, Peter, can I ask you, do you speak in tongues? And I said, I do, mom. And she said, could you pray for me that I could be filled in that same way with the Holy Spirit? Mom had been a Christian since 19. 55 since a Billy Graham crusade in Kelvin Hall. Authentic believer in Jesus. But she'd never been exposed to the opportunity to be prayed for, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So I prayed for her. I prayed for her not just that night, but several nights in a row. And then mom had this experience. And I remember one of the last things she was doing on planet Earth before she died was under her breath as she was in that hospital bed, she was glorifying Jesus in tongues and worshiping him. I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I really believe in it. He's glorious. He's awesome. He wants you to speak in tongues. He wants you to move in gifts of healing and prophecy and interpretation. He wants to empower you to be a witness so you can share this message and then the mover will do his great, loving, convicting work in people's souls. He wants you to be a power-filled, God-glorifying believer for his honor and glory only. He wants that for you. And today in these services, at the end of this service in Gorgi, and in North and in Leith, at the end of the service, I ask as many leaders that are here and are there, leaders come to the front of the ends, be ready to pray. And if you're a believer and you haven't experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, get yourself to the front. Come thirsty. Come, don't be on the fence. Come forward and say, okay, God, I want everything you've got for me. And come ready to receive from God and watch what God will do. Repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Imagine you've been part of that crowd. Imagine you heard, man, I'm not just, I'm sure I didn't call out for him to be crucified, but I know that my sin resulted in his crucifixion. I'm cut to the heart. How would you have responded? Would you have been one of the 3,000, or would you have just been one of the Jews who blended into the backgrounds? Some of you today need to repent for your sins. I say that to people who maybe have never followed Jesus. Today's your day. Repent for your sins and become a follower of Jesus. Some of you have walked away from God having previously followed him. Today, repent for your sins and follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Secondly, some of you need to get baptized. You've been given all these arguments why you shouldn't. They have no biblical validity. I'm sorry. (laughs) The Bible's clear. God's clear. Your Father in heaven's clear. Get baptized. And some of you, God wants to fill you mightily with his Holy Spirit. Let him fill you. Let him empower you today. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you so much for this incredible message we've got in the Bible, Father, about how we're sinners, but we've got a great Savior, and how you, the Holy Spirit, convicted people so deeply in their souls. You let them know that they needed it. God, today, I say thank you, God, that it's not my work to change anyone's life. Thank you, God, that's your work, and you're already moving in the precious people right here today. God, I ask you, Father, in Jesus' name, that many today will decide to repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, in God's presence, just while the musicians quietly lead us, in God's presence, I want you all to get off the fence and make a decision concerning these things you've heard. I don't care if it's out of your comfort zone. I don't care. God loves you too much to let you just be comfortable in your comfort zones. It's time to take those steps. It's time to step out. It's time to live this life. It's time to honor God. You, you make the decisions you need to make. Whatever that decision is, just where you are in his presence just now, do business with God, the Father who loves you. Pray your prayers. Respond to God just now. Go for it. Come, mighty Holy Spirit, do your work among us. So those of you who need to repent, some of you have not followed God, and today is your day. Repent for your sins and follow Jesus who died and rose again. He's alive right now. He's a glorious Savior. Let him be your glorious Savior. Repent today. Give your whole life to him today. Don't be half-hearted when it comes to God. Be whole-hearted when it comes to God. Some of you believers, you've been living like unbelievers. You've been allowing things to be in your life. And God says today, cut it off. Time to bin. Time to burn. Time to cut off. Time to end that relationship. Time to move forward. Time to honor God in public as well as in private. And some of you today, he calls, you need to now get baptized. Before you leave the service, get one of the cards that are on your seat write your name down and tick the box today I'm going to get baptized don't leave yourself any time to hesitate make the decision in the book of Acts it says that day 3,000 were added to the number so today don't wait another day put your name down to get baptized don't procrastinate honour God make a godly decisive decision to honour God today and God wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit and if that's you today, I just, just we're, in a moment, we'll lay hands on you and pray for you at the front. But before you come to the front, just in the quietness of your heart just now, ask him for that filling. Right now, ask him expectantly. And then when you come to the front, watch what God does. Ask him. So first of all, for those who need to repent, if that's you today and you're saying, Peter, today I want to become a follower of Jesus. I've, I've not been following Jesus. Today I make a decision. I'm going to follow Jesus then I invite you to pray this prayer with me just now. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your love for me. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross because of my sin and for my sin. Thank you for rising again the third day. Thank you, you're alive right now. 
Jesus, take first place in my life. I choose from this day forwards to be your follower. I give my life to you. I put my faith in you. I repent for my sins. And I follow Jesus. Be Lord of my life from this day forward. If that's you and you prayed that prayer, I'd like to pray for you, wherever you are. If that's the decision you made today, today I'm following Jesus. And just wherever you are, just I want you to raise your hands. And just say, Peter, today that's the decision I'm making. I'm making a choice. I'm going to repent for my sins and follow Jesus. Just put your hand up nice and clear so I can see it. Go for it. Thank you. Keep them up. Keep them up. Nice and clear. I'll wait for a moment. Anyone else? Be clear in this. This is the biggest decision ever. Today I'm choosing to follow Jesus. So anyone else? God, thank you for these two precious people who today are making this decision to repent for their sins and follow Jesus. There may be others here as well, God, who maybe have rededicated themselves. I pray, God, as they've prayed that prayer, thank you today you have heard their prayer and you've accepted them as your children. Let this be the beginning of a whole new journey with you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.